It's good to be here with you this morning. I'm very honored to be able to speak. Um, I haven't been attending this church for very long, so when Chase said, hey, got an opportunity, would you be willing to fill in? I was like, oh, I would be honored. And so I'm um, happy to be able to, to help in bringing the word to you today. Um, this week we are going to be finishing up Acts chapter 8. Um, and um, I'm going to have to do some recap of what Chase spoke about last week because um, if you remember, Chase started out talking about how uh, what a pivotal role this chapter plays in the entire book of Acts, the entire flow. Um, it's really a transitional book as we sort of um, are taking a look at the early beginnings of the church in Jerusalem, and we get ready to move the focus to what the gospel does throughout the entire known world. And uh, it sort of goes back to the thesis statement, I like to call it, of Acts, Acts 1-8, when Jesus says, you know, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, into Samaria and into the ends of the earth. And really in this entire chapter, we see all of those elements at play. And so um, it's a really important story for showing how the gospel is advancing in the book of Acts. Um, this chapter begins with Philip. Well, actually, it begins with Saul persecuting the church, and then everybody goes out, and it focuses on Philip and his efforts, what he did when evangelizing um, in Samaria. And so, as you remember, he went to Samaria, many signs and wonders. The church got wind of it, and they said, hey, let's send uh, Peter and John here. Let's go check this thing out. So Peter and John came up. They said, hey, look, the Samaritans are receiving uh, the gospel, and they're getting saved. They put their hands on them. They received the Holy Spirit. And uh, this was an important move because what, it, what this signaled to the church was that what was taking place in the Samaritan uh, towns was legitimate. They were now being incorporated into the church proper. It wasn't some little fringe thing that had happened because up to this point, the main body of believers had just been in Jerusalem. And so um, the story pivots a little bit. They have this encounter with Simon the sorcerer and this sort of shows Peter. But then this story after this ends, you know, it says... Uh, Simon requests that Peter prays that judgment doesn't fall upon him. And then it says, Peter and John left, they went back to Jerusalem, and they preached the gospel on the way. And then the story shifts kind of abruptly, and it goes back to Philip. Now, I think this passage is interesting, and I've got to jump ahead a little bit. I, don't, I didn't want to do this, but I feel like I have to because it's the series, and then you guys are going to hear things later. And so anyway, um, I, I feel like I have to get it in. This is an interesting story because if you would have asked me a few weeks ago, I would have said the first Gentile convert that we see in Acts comes in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. But after I actually read this story, and obviously I'm familiar with it, but when I really started to dig into it, I said, wait a second. Cornelius isn't the first Gentile convert. It's this Ethiopian eunuch right here. And so started to ask myself, well, why why is it so known that it's Cornelius? Why do we even ignore this guy? Well, if you jump all the way ahead to Acts chapter 21, we see a little moment where Paul and his little band of brothers who are going around Rome or the Roman Empire preaching the gospel um, are headed back to Jerusalem. And they stop at Caesarea. And Luke is with them, um, you know, the author of Acts right here. Luke is presumed to be with them just by the language of him saying we. Um, and they stop at Caesarea, and it says they stayed at Philip the Evangelist's house. And there he has four daughters, and he was preaching the gospel. And we'll see sort of this is where this chapter ends, is with Philip in Caesarea. And so I think this is sort of funny because 
I can imagine, you know, that they come, there's a big welcoming. It's like, hey, here's Paul and, you know, his people. And they welcome him like good church people do. Um, and then, so I, I just imagine it. One night they're sort of sitting around. They're sharing some stories. The Lord is doing this. The Lord is doing that. And praise God. They're having a good time worshiping and, 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 and swapping war stories, as it were. And this story sort of comes up from Philip. And he's like, oh, hey, guess what? This thing happened. And that's the story that we're going to get ready to tell right now. But for the church, the larger church proper, this story would have been unknown because it was a private thing that just took place with Philip on his own. And it's, and it's fairly fantastic in sort of how it unfolds. And so while the, the episode with Cornelius that we'll, we'll hear about in a few weeks sort of represents the public bringing in of Gentile believers into the church, Luke, I think, inserts this story to say, but Peter wasn't the first one. <laughs> and, and, and that's mostly to say not that what Peter does is, you know, he has to be the legitimate one. But it's that the spirit works in ways that we don't always understand. And he does what he's going to do in our lives regardless of what we think he's going to do, what we expect. So as we pick up with Acts 8, 26, let's read this passage. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of, of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. The spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with them. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask, does the prophet say this is about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news of Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through, preaching the gospel to all the towns, until he came to Caesarea. So each week, Chase has sort of chosen a word that sort of represents the spirit of the message that he's doing. Well, in keeping with that, I thought I had felt obligated to do it, even though there's not one on the screen because I didn't let anybody know what it was. <laughs> and I'm still sort of debating as to what that word should be. I have chosen one, but in full disclosure, I wanted to choose about three or four. And so you'll hear a bunch of different words sort of come up as the main themes. But I think they all focus around the word go. As you heard in the passage, it's at least uttered two times. The angel of the Lord appearing to Philip saying, go down this road. And then when he meets the Ethiopian chariot, he says, go run up next to him. Um, Another interesting thing about this story is that it's sort of told in the style that's reminiscent of Old Testament stories where 
Um, this phrase, in fact, rise up and go, is sort of reserved for great prophets, men of God like Elijah and Elisha. And it's supposed to denote that you are literally going to represent God in some official behalf. And so we sort of get this play that something mysterious is at work. It's a little different. He went, Philip journeyed to Samaria not because he was told to go there specifically, at least that's not what we're given. Um, he just sort of ended up there as part of the scattering. But for this, he's told specifically, go down this road. And um, this phrase does seem a little absurd when you think about it at first. Craig Keener calls this an absurd command. Number one, because it is usually reserved for great prophets and, and, and such like this. And now to our thinking, we probably think, well, hey, Philip is a great man. Why doesn't he deserve that title? Because... Uh, well, obviously, he's in Scripture, and he's credited with um, spreading the gospel to Samaria, and as we will see in a little bit, to the ends of the earth. But from Philip's perspective and sort of the church's new formings, he's really just a layman. You know, he's not a church leader per se. He's not one of the 12 apostles. And so it seems a little absurd that maybe this, quote, nobody would be given a command like this. But maybe he does deserve it, and so I think he does, and that's fair. But... What Keener observes is the most absurd thing about this command is that Philip is given no specific instructions whatsoever. He's just told to get up and go. Again, it sort of reminds one of stories in the Old Testament like uh, Abraham, who's just told to get up and go. Leave your land, and I'm going to show you another one. Don't worry about where you're going, how you're going to get there. Just do it, and you have to rely on me for faith. And so um, this is an extraordinary Command, and uh, I'm not going to do this throughout the whole the whole message. I promise, but I have to dive into some of the Greek here for just a moment because there are there is some interesting things at play here. When the angel of the Lord told him to go south, number one, this word south in the Greek, this could be translated south or noon or midday, and so maybe we are getting a little bit of the time of day. Maybe there is some specificity. If that were the case, we would at least have a, a reason for. Um, at least there would be a good reason for why Philip was able to run into this lone guy, it seems, on one of these deserted streets. Um, the next thing that we're told here is that uh, he should take the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now remember, he's up in Samaria. You've got to come down here to Jerusalem, and then he's going to take one of these roads down further south to Gaza. And there were two roads that he could have taken. Um, he could have taken one that would have swung out a little bit more into the country and then met up with one of these southern coastal roads south of Gaza, or he could have taken a road that would have went directly from Jerusalem, sort of cut right over to the coast. Actually, I'm going backwards for you guys. <laughs> cut over to the coast, and um, um, he would have met up with this southern road before Gaza. Um, to be honest, I don't think it really matters which road he did take. I don't, Luke doesn't seem to be concerned he got on the right road. But it does, I think, demonstrate the absurdity even more of this call is that there's continuously some ambiguity into what he's supposed to do. It's like, okay, well, I'm supposed to just, okay, at noon, I guess I'll go. And was it up to him to choose which road, or was that sort of given to him in this divine command as well? And then um, it says uh, this is a desert place. Now, several translations do different things with this. Um, I like the way the ESV does it because it leaves it ambiguous. It's one of the reasons why this is one of my favorite uh, translations is because it just says this is a desert place. But in the Greek, it could this desert place, this adjective, could refer to either the road or to the city Gaza. Both of them 
are, are feminine nouns, so they could, they could take this modifier. And um, it could be because one of these roads was more desert, deserted and in the middle of the desert. And so that would have given Philip um, a little bit more specificity. But also there was two Gazas at this time. There was the original Philistine uh, city, Gaza, that was built um, that had been destroyed. And a new Gaza had been rebuilt just a few, uh, about 30 years earlier than this, um, to take its place. So, um, again, just little details that I think continue to demonstrate the absurdity. And, it, and it, you know, it, it makes me think, have you ever been asked by God to do something that you just thought was absurd? Like, I feel like we spend so much of our time in the Christian life trying to hear from God, begging to hear from God. It's like, Lord, please speak to me. Except for those moments when he actually does and it's absurd, and then you're like, oh, well, I probably didn't really hear from God. I, you know, you, you figure out all these different ways of trying to rationalize it, or, okay, maybe I did hear from God to go and do that or say something, but, you know, I, I think, be blessed. Be blessed. You know, it's sort of like you just want to send the good vibes sort of thing. Or uh, I'll pray about it for a little while as if, you know, that will help the, the call go away somehow. Um, and so I, I can't help but be reminded that we all have these absurd calls every once in a while. And Philip had this call um, to go. But what separates Philip from, I think, at least myself in a lot of these cases, is that he was obedient. He didn't rationalize that we see, you know, he just got up and he went. Now, Philip didn't know why he was going. He just obeyed the command to go. So we see he, um, along this road, he does, he runs into an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official's Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, we're told. Now, I can imagine Philip on this journey, he sees this person. Now, it is a little bit odd because if it is midday, this isn't the time when most people do their traveling. It's the hottest part of the day. Most people, like most Mediterranean cultures today, sort of take a siesta, right? It's the midday. We're taking this off. We're at least going to eat some lunch. We're going to chill out a little bit. And so it would have been proper for him not to have encountered anybody. It would have been really strange to meet anybody on the road in the middle of the day. Um, Let's put it that way. Now, he is from Ethiopia, which isn't our current modern-day Ethiopia. Ethiopia in in ancient times would have referred to any of the lands south of Egypt. So it could have referred to all of Africa. And so um, there were many different little kingdoms. Some of them were known by the Romans, but this area was largely a mystery. It was sort of like that exotic, faraway place. And to the Romans, it was known as the ends of the earth. Nothing was thought to be beyond Ethiopia. It was sort of the all-encompassing, that's it. That's the ends of the earth. And so I think Luke is doing something really particular here when it comes to the ends of the earth with Philip. Again, he was in Samaria. And now here's an opportunity to encounter someone from the ends of the earth. But Philip doesn't know this yet. Philip is just journeying. So I I, I do wonder if he saw this guy and he's like, okay, well, there's somebody. He probably didn't think much of it. He just knows that he's supposed to go. And then the second command comes from the Lord. Go. Go run up to this chariot. So, Philip, again, I sort of hear myself um, battling with this decision. It's like, okay, well, I'm on this road, so maybe maybe I have been obedient. So that's a good call at least. And then um, I'm running along the road or I'm walking, whatever, and uh, go run up next to this chariot. Well, you know, that, that dude looks pretty important, like. I mean, if, and if I have to run to catch up with them in the middle of the, like the desert road, I mean, they're going to think I'm bandits or something like that. And so, I mean, the two possibilities, it's really like they see me coming, so they take off and they run. And then I've ruined my chance to do anything with these people. 
But worse, what if they see me coming and they think I'm a bandit and then they, they turn and they kill me? Well, then that's not really going to do Jesus any good. So maybe I'll just sort of, you know, ponder here and try to think. Maybe I'll walk really fast, you know, get my power walking on and try to catch up or something like that. But Philip again just obeys. He simply, he simply goes. And he hears this man reading from the scroll of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is really important to this passage. Again, I think it's something that Luke is signaling here. Not that he wasn't actually reading from Isaiah, but the significance of that it was an Ethiopian and he was a eunuch. Now, I don't, I don't want to go into details about what it means to be a eunuch, but um, what was common in the time for having somebody like this, um, a minister of the treasury like it would have been, who worked directly with the queen of Ethiopia or the queen's mother. Because in, in, in this time, this king in Ethiopia and this Ethiopian kingdom, um, the king himself would have been said to be the son of God. And so he was too important to deal with um, actual matters of the state. So all of that sort of stuff was sort of farmed out to his mother. And his mother sort of administrated over the kingdom on behalf of her son. And sort of that was her privileges giving birth to somebody who was said to have come from the gods in this case. Um, and, and so this Ethiopian man, who were not given a name for, um, worked directly with her. And so as common was practiced, he was probably castrated. Or um, it could be that it was another just saying that he was celibate. Either way, it would have been presumed that he was a eunuch because uh, men working with women in, in any sort of this official capacity, the royal family would have wanted to make sure that there was no chance of sexual foul play or intermingling with common people. And so... Um, so he's a Gentile and he's a eunuch. Now, he had just come from Jerusalem. It says he was worshiping in Jerusalem. Now, it probably would have taken him at least a month to make this journey one way. So he's got to travel all the way from south of Egypt, depending on where the kingdom is placed down there, it, it, it could vary. But he probably took an entire month to travel up to Jerusalem to worship. And then he was probably there for one of the major festivals. We're not given which. And we're not told how long he stayed. But it's reasonable to expect that he stayed there for at least a month. You know, I mean, if you're going to travel a month, you might as well stay a month. You know, right? Most of us don't want to travel if we can at least stay for at least as long as the time it took us to travel. And so now he's on his way back. Well, for a man who might have some sort of political ambitions in, in this kingdom or at least has some very important duties, that says something about how important his faith was to him. He's a Gentile convert that has made this at least three-month pilgrimage, taking time away from serving in the court, doing his duties, and just simply to worship. And at that, Gentiles, and eunuchs in particular, were not allowed into the inter-temple to worship. They were excluded. They were kept at arm's length. So he's got two strikes against him. Number one, he is a Gentile, and so there was a court of the Gentiles that was outside the court of, of the Jews, where the Jews could go in and, and be closer to the Holy of Holies here. But he was also a eunuch, which was looked down upon. And um, if you look at Old Testament laws, they were seen as unclean, less than worthy. Um, and then you know, even today, right, I mean, we would still have a little bit of a stigma if we knew that somebody was a eunuch is seeing them as less than a, a man or, you know, they would be a little effeminate or something like that. So there's a lot of judgment and stigma just around that identity that could be wrapped up, even though he clearly is serving an important position and has a position of honor. To the Jews, he would have been kept at arm's length. And that says something else very particular, I think, about this man's faith, that he was willing to make this pilgrimage and do this um, just to be 
as close as he possibly could and still be sort of excluded. Now, where Isaiah's significance comes into this is because he's reading from Isaiah 53, which is a, this, um, a song of the suffering servant. And we'll get into that in a second. But one can't help but think a few chapters later in Isaiah 56, after Isaiah sort of does this whole motif with the suffering servant and, and the servant's going to come and he's going to die and somehow this is going to bring salvation to Israel, what that looks like. And then the very next section in Isaiah picks up in 56. And uh, I'd like to read a, a section from that real quick because of what the significance this has for this man. And I can't help but think, at least in the conversation, this would have come up. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of the man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. I think we see the, this fulfillment of this prophecy coming, uh, being fulfilled right before our eyes. <clears throat> and, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> so it's hard not to imagine that this would have come up, at least in, in conversation when Philip starts to lay this sort of, uh, this message out. Um, before him, he is reading from. Oh yeah, that's what I was going. <laughs> Isaiah would have been particularly interesting because he says the the uh, the Ethiopian eunuch asks Philip um, to explain it to him. Philip comes up and he says, "Can you explain this to me?" Um, he he what he he was from Ethiopia, but he was also a Gentile convert, which means that there was probably a Jewish community in Ethiopia at the time. And so, what happened when the when the Jews were sent into exile? Um, during the Babylonian captivity and the Assyrian takeover, um, <clears throat> the Jews were dispersed. We call it the diaspora. And they were dispersed all over the place. And so we know that some of them made it down as far as Ethiopia in this, this country. And so they would have settled. And they established synagogues. So we've been talking about these Hellenistic um, Jews from all over the place. And they met in synagogues. And so the synagogue worship was sort of the thing that took over. When Jews did not have access to the temple, they were taken from the temple, the temple was destroyed, but they still felt a need to worship, so they formed these synagogues. By the way, the synagogue is also the model that we use for our church. It's the closest thing that we have to where we get our modern church service from. Um, um, and as was common practice for these synagogues, is they would have focused on the Torah. The first five books of the Old Testament, and that would have been where their, their, their reading and their worship would have focused. So I can imagine this Ethiopian eunuch, he, he clearly has some money and some means. He's in Jerusalem. He's got, the, you know, um, he, he's worshiping, and now he's got access to probably a library and all kinds of scribes that can reproduce scrolls from him that they've never had before. 
And Isaiah being one of the most important uh, prophet books that the Jews had, I, I can see him at least purchasing one or, or, or um, conscripting a scribe to, to reproduce one for him. So he's on the way back. He's reading this scroll. He's reading it aloud, as was common. And uh, uh, he probably is stumbling over it a little bit, like, I don't really know what this means. Or, you know, it, it probably is new to him. So Philip comes up. He hears this. <clears throat> now, this is where I get convicted the most, right? It's easy enough to say, go, go, listen. Sure, those are difficult commands. I can rationalize them, and I'm sure we all do. But after he was told to run up next to the chariot, the Lord was silent. He didn't tell Philip to do anything else from here. Philip has to take the initiative from this point on and ask this man, do you understand what you're reading? I love this point because... God doesn't always hold our hands through every moment of our lives. He is with us. He guides us. He leads us. But at some point, he wants us to pick our feet up and start to move on our own. And this is one of the best things about God, I think. We see this as early as Genesis chapter 2 when he's creating the world. And he doesn't actually create every single thing. In fact, God, what I like to say, partners with creation, to begin creating on itself. He says, <clears throat> I went too far there. Okay, well, apparently I didn't mark it well enough. He calls forth the ground. He calls forth the ground to bust up with, with plant life. He doesn't say, Plant life. He caused the ground to do it. And then we see this throughout the rest of the biblical narrative as he continually partners with people. He sends people to do his work and his will. And that's really a benefit for us because that means we get to participate. It's not that he needs it, but that he wants it. And so he invites us to do that. And so Philip has an opportunity here. He has an opportunity to take hold of partnering with God. He's been led by him very specifically, and now it's up to him to do something about it. And again, this is where my mind really starts to race. Well, if he's reading, I probably shouldn't interrupt him. He looks important. He's doing something, you know, on and on and on and on. But I like, I like the question that he asks. Do you understand what you're reading? Now, I don't know why he chose that question. I wouldn't choose that question, especially today. If I came across somebody in Starbucks reading their Bible, I probably just wouldn't walk up to them and say, hey, do you know what you're reading? Because that would probably come off a little offensive and be like, what do you mean? Well, you know what I'm reading. Don't you know I pastor so-and-so's church or whatever? Um, but it was a good conversation starter here. And um, I, I like that. It's a conversation starter. He didn't try to just like launch in and start yelling at the man, this is the gospel. You don't know what you're reading. But he, he, he invites this man into a conversation. Um, again, Philip doesn't know that this is actually the reason why he's come. I think he's just seen an opportunity and he's willing to take it. In his mind, all he knows is to go up to this chariot. But he could still be going further. He, he, and he asked this man. And then the Ethiopian, having the good open heart that he does, says, How could I without somebody to explain it to me? And then he invites Philip to come up and do it. And so it turns out that he was reading again this, uh, this suffering servant psalm in Isaiah 53. So let's read that real quick. Who has believed that he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty um, that we should look at him. 
and no beauty that we should desire him. And he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried away our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that it was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man... Um, in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. This is the passage that um, that they were reading, and um, is as common practice. Uh, biblical authors would often quote a small portion to imply the entire thing. And I'm going to do that right now because I'm not going to read. I'm not going to finish reading out the rest of um, <clears throat> chapter 53. But we, again, we don't know how far this conversation went, or how much exactly Luke was trying to imply. The point was, is they got it in the ballpark, and this is the main point that they were reading from. Now, Jews at this time um, did not consider this to be a messianic prophecy. They just thought this was probably indicative of Israel itself. Israel had been suffering during this time, you know, during the exile and all this. Um, They wouldn't have connected this with the messianic prophecy. They didn't think that their savior king would come and suffer. It was sort of an absurdity. And it's why Paul in 1 Corinthians says that to the preaching the crucified Christ to the Jew is a stumbling block because it's an oxymoron. It's sort of like saying the victorious loser or the, the free man in prison or the dead alive guy over there. It doesn't make sense. It's just sort of like, what are you talking about? But Jesus claimed this of himself. And so now we hear Paul, I mean, um, <clears throat> not Paul, Philip. <laughs> Having an opportunity to expound upon this scripture, and I can just, I, I, I can sort of, again, see the wheels turning in Philip's head, and he's like, well, that's what you're reading about. Okay, well, let me tell you a story, right? Let me tell you what I've seen and what I've heard about from the guys who actually walked with this man. And so he, he, he was able to expound upon um, the great passion that had just recently happened, the, the great sacrifice that, that Christ had come and the victory that he had won through his death on the cross. Um, we are assuming that uh, this Ethiopian believed and accepted this message because the very next thing that we see happening is that he says, well, what prevents me from being baptized? Now, some, some translations and some later texts sort of add in Philip's, he, he needs a confirmation and says, well, you can be baptized as long as you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't get that in the, in the shorter readings, but uh, it, it's fairly obvious that he, he wants to be baptized. So he commands the chariot to stop. And they jump out, and they probably have come across one of these wadis, these little um, little streams that flow through the places. And so they, they went down there, and they were and he was baptized. And uh, it was at this moment when they came up that the Spirit took Philip away. And now, I don't want to spend a lot of time. Probably we're all familiar with this passage because we think this is teleportation. And it might have been. I'm not going to say it's not teleportation. But I don't think that's what the purpose 
of this passage is I think Luke is putting that in here to signal to us that Philip had fulfilled his purpose. And at that point, he knew it. I don't think Philip knew what he was doing as far as fulfilling this purpose up to that point. I think he saw an opportunity, and he was taking advantage of it. But at this moment, after he's baptized, um, the Spirit takes him away. And it says, the, the Ethiopian was filled with great joy. He never saw him again, and he went on rejoicing. Now, we're not told what actually comes of this Ethiopian. Um, he, presumably, he goes back to his country, and he evangelizes, and a, and a church is born. Um, we know early church tradition says that's what happens, but we don't have any documents from this period that really give testimony to that. We do know that there was a thriving church community from about the 3rd century on in, in, in this part of the world. Um, but it's presumable that that's what happened. Um, the gospel had now broken into the ends of the earth. And although the task had not been yet complete, it was beginning. And we see here, I think, Luke saying, this is it. The gospel is going. And so Philip goes back up. He goes back to Azotus, and he passed through, and he preached the gospels, and he ended up at Caesarea. And that's where we pick up with the story back you know, in uh, chapter 21, where I think Luke actually heard about this story for the first time. Now, there's a few observations to close up that I would like to make about this passage. And this was another, this was the other um, word that I almost chose, but it didn't actually appear here, so I didn't do it. But I think it goes well with go, and it's willing. I heard this um, a few years ago, and I don't know exactly where. It wasn't in a Christian context. It was in a secular context. But it, w- it said, are you willing, not are you ready? I said, that's really interesting. Because a lot of times I tend to think, well, I'm not ready for that, so I won't do it. I need to prepare. And so this sort of was flipping it on, on its head. It was, says, well, you'll never be ready. But are you willing to do it? Sometimes you have to be willing to jump in, to dive in, even though you don't feel ready. Because if you wait for that feeling, it may never come. And then you may never take advantage of the opportunities that are placed before you. And so I have that on my wall at work to sort of remind me of that when things come up. And it's like, oh, we're not ready for that. And it's like, well, we could be. We could be. And I think it's fitting for this here. Was Philip ready to take this journey? I don't know. It seems sort of... Go back to the absurdity thing. He was preaching. He had probably hundreds, if not thousands of people in Samaria following him. I mean, Simon the Sorcerer was some big weight. So, I mean, at least that was newsworthy. And God calls Philip and he says, I want you to leave the huge crowds and I want you to go down this road. And I'm not going to tell you where it is. And then all of that effort is going to be just to reach one man. Absurd. Was Philip ready to do it, though? Doesn't say, but he was willing. He was willing to go twice, and he was willing to take advantage of the opportunities that was given to him. And he did take it. Um, I've experienced some moments like these in my life where you're having to deal with fear. Sometimes you get a directive, sometimes you don't. Maybe it's just an opportunity. And fear tends to arise in our hearts and our minds in these moments. And I think fear is the real ready killer. If I'm not ready, it's because I'm afraid. If I'm willing, I ignore my fear. So I think to us today, and at least to myself, this, this passage has really challenged me on, on what it means to, uh, to be willing to follow the voice of the Lord and be led by the Spirit. Because um, if I'm afraid, I'm living for myself. I'm afraid of consequences of what might happen to me. 
I'm afraid of how people might perceive me if I fail. Am I enough? What if they reject it? What if they don't accept it? Am I going to turn somebody off from the gospel forever? All of these little excuses that we tend to uh, say to ourselves in these moments. But what really reminds that's not coming from a place of love. And that's really the antidote to fear. Because perfect love casts out all fear. Right? John tells us this in 1 John 4. I want to tell you a story, though, about a time when I did fail. I was in seminary at the time. Um, I was working at Globe University. I don't know if many of you know I work at Globe University, and so it's a ministry of the Assemblies of God. And we reach people all over the world and equip and train and do all that sort of stuff. And so I get to have some small role in, in doing that sort of thing. But I was also going to seminary at the time, um, preparing to be a minister, right? Getting my Master's of Divinity degree. Ooh, sounds cool. And I remember we, I had just finished class, and I was getting ready to leave. And so I had gotten into my car, and I was pull, as I was backing out, this guy had pulled in, and he jumped out of his truck, and he ran over to the car, and he said, Hey, I had my windows down at the time, and um, he said, and I can't, I can't tell you exactly what he, what he said. I don't remember that. But he, he said, I need help. I'm looking for somebody to talk to me about Jesus. Can you do it? And I, of course, being the good minister that I was, trying to get back to work on time after studying a long, diligent day, I said, you know what? There's a seminary right there. <laughs> Go in there, and they'll tell you, they'll give you somebody to talk to. <laughs> so he said, okay. So that's what he did, and I drove off. And I got about a quarter mile down the road, and then all of a sudden it just hit me in the back of the head. I said, oh my goodness. I've just missed an opportunity. I wasn't willing to at least take a few moments of my time and tell this man about Jesus. Or at least hear what he had to say. I mean, it, he could have been a panhandler, and I mean, that, that could have been possible. But I didn't get that distinct uh, impression. I mean, I've dealt with plenty of those panhandlers, and I think the Lord has used those in different areas of my life. I could tell some stories about that too. But this particular moment, I felt, was one of these opportunities. So I turned back around, as, as you know, I was on, uh, on Glenstone, and so I, I had just rounded National, I mean, uh, just around uh, Evangel, rather. So I pulled around in Evangel's parking lot, cut back through, came back to AGTS, and um, his truck wasn't there. And so I pulled out my phone real quick, and I remember I called the front desk and said, hey, this guy just came in, and I sent him in there, and I was wondering, is he still there, or did you send him up to like a professor or something like that? And he said, she, she said, no, I, we, didn't, we don't do that, so I just... Told him to go find a church or something like that. And that, that moment will haunt me for the rest of my life. And I don't tell you that to say, to pass judgment on myself or to pass judgment on you. If you've had those moments, I mean, I think we probably all have had moments where we've missed an opportunity. And I don't think the point of this message is to make us feel bad and, and, and to cast us down. But I do think it should be a call to be willing to be led by the Spirit. To, be, to make that decision, Lord, no more. I'm not going to continue to live my life in such a way that it's not being led by you. I want to be willing to go wherever that may be. Now, the Lord might not be telling us today to all get out and walk down Glenstone and head south. And you know, maybe we'll worry about what happens when Glenstone turns into a republic. That's not, that's not what I think we're, we're, we've been called to do. But I do think we've all been given another absurd call. And that is to live life as a disciple. 
We liken the Christian life all the time to a journey, which means we think we're heading somewhere, at least, and we're heading somewhere with someone. Um, that's absurd if we don't really know a destination. So I think it's pretty similar to what Philip was. It's like, go and look for opportunities. And then when I tell you, and I will intervene, then do those things, but look for opportunities, right? I don't want to miss any more opportunities. I want to be led of the Spirit, and I want to be willing to go when those opportunities arise. And so, as, um, as Barry comes to... Uh, as we get ready to transition into a time of worship, I don't want to leave it down and negative on that story, but I do want to encourage us. The gospel's call and what this Ethiopian experienced here, and we read it in Isaiah, the result of receiving the gospel is joy. He went away rejoicing. And I think that's really the antidote. If you want to, like, if the antidote to fear is love, then how do we get that love? And that is rejoicing in the Lord, experiencing that grace that he has given to us and letting that, that grace well love up in us for our neighbors, for our unsafe co-workers, for our friends, whomever it may be, let that love shine through our joy. So as we worship, two things I want us to think about. Rejoice that you have been given this great gift. I think most of us in here are probably believers. So rejoice in that. Let's worship. And then let the love of God fill your heart and let it inspire you to go out throughout today, throughout this week and on saying, Lord, show me those opportunities and lead me by your spirit that I may be willing to take advantage of those opportunities you show me.